0: So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue-white-green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Kim McKay and I once shared an office way back in 2008 down a small corner building in the heart of bustling East Sydney. That very same year, Kim was awarded as an Officer of the Order of Australia or an AO, in 2008, and that was for distinguished service to the environment and the community. Fast forward 13 long years, and Kim has notched up seven years as the Director and CEO of the Australian Museum, one of my all-time favourite public spaces in Australia. Kim is responsible for strategic planning and management of the nation's first museum, including a collection of over 21.9 million natural resource and cultural objects and specimens. As the first woman to hold the role, in the Australian Museum's 190 plus year history. Kim leads the Australian Museum's master planning and has initiated a broad transformation program. This includes overseeing Project Discover, the museum's $57.5 million major transformation refurbishment of spaces. Kim has had a significant international career focused on the environment, marketing, communications and non-fiction television. She in fact co-founded the iconic Clean Up Australia and Clean Up the World campaigns in the 1990s. Museums remain such special places. And like many city kids in Sydney, I have such fond memories of many hours wild away at the Australian Museum's dinosaur displays and cabinets full of treasures. Now, not only as a child, but also taking my own children over the past decade or so. But perhaps in a digitally obsessed society, these may not be as familiar places they're as frequented as often as I would have gone perhaps 30 years ago. Let's find out. I am delighted to speak to Kim McKay on the politics of museums. Welcome.
1: Well, hello, Amra. Good to be here.
0: Indeed. So let's go back um, maybe a few decades for you. Where did you begin your career and was it what you thought it would be? Why or why not?
1: It's more than a few decades now, I hate to tell you. I just realised the other day that uh, this month we're recording this, um, I have marked my 40th year working.
0: Oh, you must have started as a child prodigy.
1: I I must have, exactly. Uh, It's quite extraordinary when I think back. So originally after high school, I did a Bachelor of Arts Communications at UTS, or what is now known as UTS. snap, a lot of good people have done that degree. It was really uh, very competitive to gain entry to it, but I had a wonderful time there and majored in journalism, sociology, and also majored in public relations. And it was when I you know, those accidents of history, I call them the sliding door moments when I graduated. It just so happened that I was offered two roles within the same week. And one was as a, an editorial assistant in a magazine, which paid the almighty sum then of $10,000 a year. And the other was working as a junior consultant in a PR agency, which paid $12,000 a year. So what did I do? I took the money.
0: That two grand, which may have gone a little bit further back then than it would now. Well, that's right, it did. And uh,
1: I worked in a really fun uh, public relations agency where I really learned the craft uh, of what managing communications was really all about. And I worked with a terrific woman uh, who was the senior consultant I reported to called Marguerite Julian, and she She was sort of one of those PRs who knew people all over town and pretty soon I was uh, uh, involved in all sorts of fun projects and and during that time one of them was I participated in the Southern Cross Air Race, which was a fantastic event um, that went across Australia with a couple of hundred planes in it, aeroplanes, and there was an all-women's team sponsored by our client Schwarzkopf. The hair company. Wow! And they had a few spare seats because they were um, they were flying a jet. It was one of the only jets in the air race, and so I went with and took a, a journalist along with me. And I suddenly went, "This is what I want to be doing. I want to be doing bigger events and things. I don't want to be doing PR for light switches all my life, which was one of my clients, and they were very dear and um, I loved them, but." you know, I I couldn't see myself just doing that forever. So it really made me think about the next move in my career and I applied for a role that was advertised for The Missing Link and it was to work on a big international yacht race and I got the job. And from there, you know, I managed the Australian end of the BOC Challenge solo around the world yacht race, which embarked me on this great career of the first 10 years of my working life of working all over the world, Um, you know, the BOC group, the sponsor of the race, I would fly to different ports and it really made me realise that there was this whole wonderful world of work out there and these big international events that I could work on. And so pretty soon after I started also working on the World um, Pro Surfing Tour here in Australia, which was fantastic, and I did some car racing and all sorts of things. So my world started opening up just because of that one little opportunity. I
0: love I love that sliding doors analogy and I I, I can see there's a couple of themes in there in your work it sounds like a bit of environmentalism a water theme for sure with all that uh, yachting and so forth but I guess was it sort of about your personal drivers as well obviously you could do PR for anyone it's sort of a skill set which you can apply like you say to light switches or to environmentalism what was it about sort of the latter that really drove you? Well it's
1: It's about, I guess, um, if my skill set had become in the management of communications, I realised there could be much broader imposts in that. So other than straight PR, I started doing a lot of sponsorship negotiation uh, with companies and working out the sponsorship benefits and a lot of um, working out the uber promotional positioning of an event and marketing of it. And so I really stepped out of pure PR, for want of a better phrase, into more of the the bigger picture marketing of events, putting the deals together, which I really enjoyed. I, I love a good good win on a deal, and uh, and really looking at the whole perspective of a, a project or a product. So that's really what took me off in the marketing comms direction, and it was during the BOC challenge race. I think in it was eight, the 86-87 event that an Australian Ian Kiernan entered the race and all of the competitors had agreed to keep their plastic rubbish on board. Now think about how long ago this was. This was 1986.
0: That's right. We, we, we didn't mind a bit of plastic back then, did we?
1: Well, there are a lot of people around the world really starting to campaign on this. And so all of the competitors kept their plastic on board and I think when you do something like that and then they were sharing the results with schoolchildren across America. When you do something like that you start to see plastic everywhere I think. It's it's like when you drive by a red car and then you start seeing red cars everywhere. You know, it's just on your radar.
0: Absolutely. So that consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that I can see that. Yeah.
1: That's right. It goes it goes to top of mind Amber and and so suddenly um, everyone started saying, oh, wow, this is a major problem. But Ian, he, um, when he sailed through the Sargasso Sea in mid-Atlantic, he just couldn't believe the amount of plastic that was trapped there in the golden seaweed. And uh, he, at that moment, decided to do something about it. He didn't know what. When he came back to Sydney at the end of the race, and he said a very interesting thing, actually, which is yes. when, you, when you have a success, when you've achieved something, it emboldens you to want to achieve more and do more. And I felt that myself too, and I know with other people who've achieved various things, it really does. It spurs you on to greater action. Rarely do you find somebody who achieves who then sits down, puts their feet up and says, well, that's done. You know, they want to go on to the next big thing and so forth. And Ian really felt emboldened after the race. And he was out sailing on Sydney Harbour weekend and one weekend and, saw the tide line of plastic and rubbish along the harbour beaches and walked into my office on the Monday morning and said, Kim, you know, years ago I saw a clean-up in Hawaii in the Aloai Canal where people got out with these bags and were picking up rubbish. He said, we need to do it here. Sydney harbour's in a shocking state. Do you think that would work? And I, I don't know. I said, yeah, that'll work and swung yeah. around to my then IBM golf ball typewriter And we typed the first letter to the New South Wales government about having a clean-up, and it was to a very lovely man, Laurie Brereton, who um, was Minister for Ports at the time. You know, I wanted to do the right thing, go the right way about it, write to the minister. And and, uh, about eight weeks later we got a letter back saying, which had obviously been written within the public service there, saying um, thank you for your idea but uh, my department looks after the clean-up of Sydney Harbour and will continue to do so. Well, there's nothing like a no. There's nothing like a no to make you spring in forward because, you know, it was one of those first lessons I really started learning, which was don't ever ask permission. Just get out and do it if you want to do it. And Ian knew a lot of influential people and through the race we'd met a lot of people and so uh, we put a committee together of basically friends uh, and we started the first clean up the harbour day which was on the 8th of January 1989 and I still say it's one of the best days of my life which is really funny because it was about garbage but it was just fantastic to see the community of Sydney turn out something like 40,000 people volunteered that day To clean up the harbour. The harbour, by the way, is massive. I mean,
0: oh, it is absolutely. (laughs) If anyone that doesn't live in Sydney, if you fly in, which I know no one flies anymore, but if you do fly in, you do get an idea of how long that plane says we're, you know, going along that coastline. It's it's not a small small place.
1: That's right. So it has two hundred and seventy kilometres of foreshore around Sydney Harbour, and um, we had clean up sites all over the place, and it was just staggering the amount of rubbish we removed over five thousand tons. And it was everything in there from building materials, dump cars through to the normal packaging materials, the plastic packaging and bottles and all sorts of things. And and shockingly, uh, the thing that really shocked everybody was that day we picked up 3,000 syringes around on the beaches of Sydney Harbour. And in those days, there used to be a needle exchange program up in Kings Cross in East Sydney. Um, and so those syringes were being disposed of by being dropped in the street and then they were washed down the stormwater drains into the harbour. So if if we didn't do anything else that day, we certainly raised awareness of the need for policy action immediately on this major public health issue of needle stick injury. So that was just by the by. Anyway, the phones started to ring around Australia the next day and um, it was it was truly amazing. People around Australia started saying, look, I want to do a cleanup in my area and, and I'd written a little booklet of how to organise a cleanup. and uh, the first person to come and see us after that was from Tasmania and he wanted to organise the Day of the Derwent and he basically followed the steps to a team. We went down and suddenly there were 10,000 people out in Hobart to clean up the Derwent River, you know, and Hobart's a very small town
0: Absolutely. A huge amount of people.
1: Yeah, with that we knew that um, Australians really cared about this issue and were spurred to take action themselves. And, and uh, you know, Clean Up Australia was born out of that and it, it was an extraordinary time. Yes. I, it was funny, you know, I was just thinking about it the other day with COVID, you know, we've seen the states... Really operate their states as if they were their own little countries by shutting borders and things. Well, the thing I learned early on in cleanup was we do operate like that because, of course, we were going off to other states only where people had invited us to come to. But there was always this resistance from politicians and others, you know, don't you come here telling us what to do. <laughs>
0: Yes some of that some of that hasn't changed and that's and that's fascinating so I suppose fast forwarding a little bit how do you end up being the director and CEO of the Australian Museum I mean your background is so varied but you know a lot of people I know in that sector perhaps have worked in cultural institutions all their lives but for you it's quite recent.
1: Yeah sure well um, again sort of being a little bit in the right place at the right time but after the cleanup, a decade involved in that, I moved to America uh, initially to work for the Discovery Channel, where I ran their largest uh, production called Discovery Channel Eco Challenge. And then I moved to um, National Geographic Channel, where I became head of global marketing and comms for the channel. And so I spent seven years in the States at that time working in nonfiction television and really uh, gaining a much broader understanding of not just the environment, you know, which had become a a very big part of my background, but also um, other areas of natural history and and how you communicate that. And when I returned to Australia, I was invited to join the board of the Australian Museum, which I did, and was really enjoying that when the role of director was advertised. And, you know, I'd I'd been really anxious to do something else big, You know, when you work on things like Clean Up Australia and then Clean Up the World, you know, where I travel the world with that project and working for National Geographic all over the world and Discovery Channel, you really have this hankering to do something else big. And I thought, wow, I can do that. You know, I've got the skill set actually, not a typical skill set, but certainly a skill set that's needed right now. And, of course, having that huge communications background and understanding that the museum needed that. It needed somebody with, I I guess, determination and vision to transport the museum into the future. You know, you mentioned at the outset that this museum is over 190 years old now, and it had never had a uh, a non-scientist running the museum. They'd always been scientists. And it was really time, I think, for that shift to occur to understand that we're in the digital era and that museums need to also adapt through that, and they also needed skills like fundraising and how to put deals together, which which were never preeminent before in the director's role.
0: Right. Yes, that makes sense. I mean, you need money to make, keep these places functioning, and I always think that museums obviously have a huge historical and cultural significance, but there's sometimes a degree of conflict, and I think about my time having worked in, in museum environments in the UK and so forth you know, museums have to navigate that a lot better these days. So I think about the antiquities section, for example, the V&A Museum in London, and you look at this amazing sort of piece of a statue, but you kind of know it's been looted from somewhere in Asia and it's kind of got all this scientific evidence. And you sort of, these days, this is 20 years ago when I lived in the UK, like it was always never, I was never that comfortable with it, but it was just accepted. And I think now audiences are expecting us to be a little bit more culturally nuanced, more sensitive, So how do you actually navigate that in a space like the Australian Museum?
1: Well, I just see myself as a custodian of our collection and also very much facing up to a lot of issues that museums today need to think about. So one of those issues in the scientific realm is climate change. So I have made climate change communication and activity a pillar of what we do for the future. Now the reason I've done that is because museums are very trusted institutions. People grow up, as you said, you did, visiting the museum, and, and we have no political agenda. We're here to present the science and the scientific fact. So, you know, I don't mind putting that out front and centre here in Australia. We need to. And museums should be sort of these places of of debate and discussion. Uh, they are uh, intellectual establishments historically. So there's no reason why we shouldn't tackle difficult issues. The other difficult issue we're tackling is how we've treated First Nations people in Australia. And, you know, we've got a collection of over 20,000 Indigenous objects here in the collection, you know, that come from a broad range of communities across Australia. And we really need to, uh, I guess the word decolonise the museum has been thrown around a lot, but it's really more than that. It's, it's self-determination for First Nations people. So um, we're very fortunate that the Australian Museum has a First Nations team, got some great leadership in it. And I'm just about to appoint uh, a First Nations person to the executive leadership team and really give the role of First Nations in the museum more prominence and more voice and more advocacy because we need to be involved in that. And that's demonstrated by uh, a major exhibition that will be opening in May this year called Unsettled. And we did the largest ever consultation with First Nations people across Australia on this exhibition. It's entirely First Nations led and it deals with truths that uh, you and I didn't learn about at school, but
0: that's for sure. <laughs>
1: some people will find it confronting. But again, I think the Australian Museum is the place to often have those discussions with the general community. And if it's not here, where can it be that it's a safe place to do so? And so I'm very keen to raise issues here and not afraid to in the sense that the community needs to consider these issues at all levels. And we can't just leave it in the preserve of the media to have a discussion it needs to be broader than that, and and I think museums and galleries are great places to raise these issues. So you'll see a lot more of that from us in the future.
0: That's interesting. Obviously COVID might have put a bit of a delay to some of your plans, but I imagine over the past seven years that you've been there maybe the approach has evolved and shifted from where where you started to where you are now. You've given a great example with the exhibition Unsettled, which is coming up, and I guess the appointment of more First Nations people across the institution. Yeah. Is there any other examples of how, you know, that the museums had to adapt and evolve and pivot in a really tricky time?
1: Absolutely. And so let's just take the COVID example now. Sometimes I think I'm born under a lucky star, but if there's such a thing. We were closed mostly during COVID because we were rebuilding the museum. We had secured uh, $57.5 million from the government and philanthropists to rebuild the museum and update it. And so we were closed. So we planned to be closed during COVID.
0: Well-timed, Kim.
1: Yes, very well-timed. So we got our staff very quickly working from home and continuing to work on key things for the museum while we rebuilt it. We opened on the 28th of November last year, so we've just been open 70-odd days at the moment, but reopened to record crowds and the museum looks fantastic. So one of the things we've done, of course, is pivot in terms of the facilities we're offering, the space we're offering. It really is fantastic it's it's very spacious now we can take more people and we have been achieving record crowds in fact just over this past weekend we welcomed our 200,000th visitor which is incredible for 2 months
0: that's incredible we've over doubled That's amazing and people obviously feel like there's something to come and see. They do. You know, they might have been there 10 years ago, five years ago, but obviously a revamp.
1: Yes, absolutely. The other thing we did during the COVID period pivoting was uh, we put, we created so much more online content. We had a lot anyway, but we actually tailored it for parents and teachers so that parents could teach at home. So really wonderful access on our website to information for people and that went down super well, and we did quite a few online exhibitions as well, like our bushfire exhibition on images from the bushfires at the beginning of last year, which really has proved extremely popular with the public, So, uh, and it's won awards um, for its online exhibition capability. But the other way we're changing the museum, of course, is, is to make it more accessible to a wider range of people, I don't want people to feel in any sense of intimidation coming here, which is why we've been working with the government and the museum has reopened free to the public, which is a major step forward. It's why we're getting these enormously bigger crowds through. You know, when we used to have our free weekends here, I'd see people come in from Western Sydney and three generations of families, you know, immigrant families, who you'd see the grandparents, the parents and the kids and they would only come on that day because they didn't have the resources to keep paying to come back in. And, and to make the museum free now, it, it's just fantastic to see the crowds come in, to see the families come in. And they pay for special exhibitions like Tyrannosaurus that's on at the moment or for special programming activities. But by and large, anyone now can come into the Australian Museum as often as they like and wander through. Now, that's only current until uh, the 30th of June, this financial year, but I'm working with the government to see if we can make it for all time. So fingers crossed there.
0: Fabulous opportunity to go see the museum. So how would you say that the marketing of a museum would differ from, say, other commercial attractions or forms of entertainment? Do you have an example of how it's different? Uh, At
1: one level it's not different because I'm competing at the museum out there with cinemas when they're open, uh, with festivals, uh, with other venues, you know, with a concert or anything like that. So the museum is in that realm, you know, and there are five major cultural institutions in Sydney, the Sydney Opera House, the State Library, the Art Gallery, Sydney Living Museum, sorry, there are six now, Sydney Living Museums is the sixth one, but um, also Mars, uh, Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, all known as the Powerhouse Museum, and ourselves. And so the cultural institutions sort of provide the bedrock of, I suppose, uh, of arts and culture in the state and in Sydney particularly. So, you know, we're all competing for the eyeballs and people to attend our venues and to participate in our programs. You know, one of our, for want of a better term, key performance indicators, one of the New South Wales government is it's based around attendance yes. at the museum. And so, you know, we have a number of different outcomes. So the New South Wales government, the way they allocate funding, has switched to outcomes-based budgeting and we were one of the first institutions to go through that as a small government agency And so we really did understand what they were after. And so having that lens of what are our outcomes in terms of delivery to the public. And and as a CEO, I sit here and every time we decide to spend money anywhere, I ask the question, is this in the best interests of the taxpayer, of the people of New South Wales? Is it delivering on our goals and our promise and our outcomes And you know it—it makes me very unpopular with staff sometimes. (laughs) But that—that's the lens through which I look at everything, and that's my job.
0: That's your role.
1: So we have the Australian Museum Research Institute, which is our scientific arm, and we have over 100 scientists working in there day in and day out. And you know, I love it. This morning, I woke up to hear one of our scientists on the radio talking about the blue bottle infestation in Sydney. Yes. At the moment, and of course. know and she's the expert on that subject in this state and you know is so authoritative and
0: she's one of your own it's amazing so there's a lot of relevance I guess to what you're doing and what our modern lives look like which with people might traditionally not think of an institution like the Australian Museum as having that role but it sounds like it's broader
1: yeah well they think of that they come to the museum and they see the exhibitions but they don't understand often the depth of work that goes on behind the scenes and the really important science that takes place here day in, day out. And I'm very proud of our scientists for what they do and how they contribute to our understanding of what's happening with biodiversity. I mean, just look at our citizen science project, Frog ID, which we created a few years back. It's the most successful citizen science project in the country. It's got an incredible app that you can download for free. And you can go out with your family or friends and, you know, when frogs are calling, you know, record those calls, we tell you what sort of frog it is, but we're getting the GPS data on where those frog populations are. So, for example, after the Bayjah bushfires, our data set of frogs in New South Wales was the only comprehensive data set on any group of animals that existed, and that's all because of the public being part of Frog ID and, and us really doing this massive research project using the public's interest and ability to operate a phone. And we've all got that power now in our hands with iPhones. And uh, it was a matter of setting up the project and creating that app. IBM helped us. Uh, we got a grant from the federal government for it. And it's just gone gangbusters. And we've got a great scientist, Dr. Jody Rowley, who is the frog expert in the nation now, and uh, she's a great science communicator too. So I guess one of the, the things I love is that I'm able to bring the opportunity to create projects and promote them and see our scientists out there front and centre communicating science and making it more accessible yeah. to people, which is incredibly important in this day and age. It's
0: very important and it sounds like it's just a great breadth of work. I do have a couple of final questions which are a bit more focused on you, which we always love to dive in and see what our guests will say. Sure. I guess most people have had special mentors or inspiring people in their life. Do you have one or two people that, I and mean, who are they and what have they taught you about success and this thing called life?
1: I guess I'm a sponge for uh, listening to great leaders in different ways. I was very lucky that early on in my career I, I mentioned Marguerite Julian. She was sort of my first mentor at work. And then I worked with an incredible man, Mick Harfield, for many years. He was a university lecturer and had his own business, and I went to work with him on some of these big events. And Mick had been a former priest and uh, had a very interesting insight into life in general Then working with somebody like Ian Kiernan was fantastic who who was just determined you know you, you can't sell solo around the world and not be determined and self-reliant and he taught me a lot of that and then of course just working in the states I had some mentors there but somebody you know having a lifetime mentor uh, somebody I really admire and I always turn to if I've got a question or a dilemma is Wendy McCarthy who of course, did run McCarthy Mentoring. Now her daughter does, Sophie McCarthy. But Wendy has always been there as a solid guide for me across the years. And we all need that. I mentor a lot of people now. I think it's really important to give back. And I'm very fortunate, you know, here at the museum, my first president of trustees was Catherine Livingston, who is just the most exceptional person. And so, I'm very lucky to also have had Catherine Livingston as a sounding board and guider in my life. And Sam Mostyn, who is has been a dear friend for a long time. You know, she's a former president of the museum too and a great person to sit down and brainstorm with. So I really advocate for surrounding yourself with good people and listen to them and learn from them. And boy, I, I'm uh, mentoring a young woman at the moment who's a, a professional sports person in the She's an iron woman and she's 22 and passionate about the environment as well and studying environmental science at uni concurrently. And I learn so much from her. That's why I mentor her. It's what I get from her. I get this 22-year-old full of great ideas.
0: Yeah, it's two-way, which a lot of people do say. And, and just finally to wrap up, what would you say your number one sort of goal is at the end of the day in navigating the politics of museum? What's the one big takeaway that you're learnt or you're still learning?
1: Well, the most important asset you have are actually the team who work for you. We have 300 people who work here at the museum and they're a great team by and large and providing the environment to get the best out of them and and to get the creativity and the science research and and creating a workplace that, you know, is changing all the time, of course, now, but they're the best asset. And I guess that collection of 21.9 million objects, which is the The collection and these buildings that were in these sandstone buildings are now valued at over a billion dollars and so it's a big responsibility to care for those and to make sure we're taking the right steps and of course the the third thing is the public itself of how you uh, create an offering that people want to come and enjoy i want this place to have open doors it to be a new town square really where people can come in all the time learn something new enjoy the cultural institution for what it is and and really understand that while we're talking to you about the past in many ways and showing you things from the past we're helping understand the present day but most importantly we're really projecting into the future and and what being a a, a valuable and exciting and vivid museum means for the future and and that, to me, is incredibly exciting. We're in this digital age, as I mentioned, you know, and, and forging a new path here in that world is really has a sense of responsibility. Interestingly, the new head of the Natural History Museum in London is also a non-scientist now. He's the former head of Amazon in the UK.
0: Oh, you've pioneered the way, Kim.
1: Well, maybe. It's happened in a few other places too where we've been able to demonstrate that in this day and age, you know, maybe you need different skill sets as the CEO or leader of the institution, but with science as prominent as ever, you know, so it's really an exciting time, I think, for museums around the world. And I just can't wait till COVID leaves us and we can go back to uh, communicating and working with museums more collaboratively in the future, because it's an incredibly exciting space.
0: It's been such a great conversation. If you do want to connect with Kim further, I will have her LinkedIn details on my show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Daines. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.